I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is Jessica Powell, author of The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. She's also former Google VIP, VIVP of communications. As a tech lover and loather who ran Google's global communications team and was a close advisor to the CEO, Jessica Powell sheds light on what it's like to be a woman working in the male-dominated Silicon Valley culture and why she decided to leave on a high note. Her book is a rip-roaring comedy about big plans and bigger egos at the world's largest tech company that will have you clutching your stomach in laughter while thinking twice about the world our tech overlords are building. She's the author of Literary Paris, and her fiction and nonfiction has been published in The Guardian, The New York Times, Wired, and Medium Magazine. She's also the co-founder and CEO of a startup that builds software for musicians. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I've heard you say that uh, writing this book was a cathartic experience. So I guess the first question is, why was it cathartic? Describe that feeling for us in in relation to your book. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. You know, when I started writing it, I had had no idea how to write a book. I had no idea what I was doing. It was... Um, I had gone to a tech conference where I sat in the audience and listened to the CEO of Airbnb get up and suggest that if more people were using Airbnb around the world and sharing each other's houses, we might have fewer wars. And it struck me as a very, very extraordinary statement to be making about what was essentially an unregulated hotel business. Um, and I wasn't sitting there thinking that I was above it all. I got up on stage with my um, boss, the CEO of a dating startup, and um, we basically told everyone that we weren't doing dating. Rather, we were about helping people make friendships. And and I was just really struck as I came away from that conference, this is in 2012, about what a crazy world I was working in. And not only were we as companies and startups making these really grandiose pronouncements about what we could do for the world, but also the internal environment in some of these companies was quite different from the image that they, you know, gave to the rest of the world. And the place I was working um, at this dating startup to do, it was incredibly sexist. And I remember just sitting there on the plane and I just started writing. Like I was, I, I it was entirely trying to make sense of things and trying to understand how, particularly working in such an incredibly sexist place, I wondered, how bad do I have to make it for you all to believe I me mean, when I'm telling you this is bad? And so I did, and I think that's how satire happened, was just I was exaggerating and pushing it further and further in the hopes of trying to make sense of it for myself, but also almost as like a, a mini sort of cry for help, I think. So this was kind of the define. this was the defining moment. You had been sort of going in that direction, but sort of suppressing your feelings or repressing your feelings uh, when you were working for this. Yeah. This, yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. That was the moment where it really crystallized. I think it had been a while um, that I'd started to feel a little bit like what the tech company was, what tech companies generally were saying. And I think it, a lot of this, a lot of what we hear in terms of these mission statements and values comes from a sincere place. But I started to feel that there was this disconnect between everything that the companies were saying and some of the things that they were doing, both internally and externally. And I think that had been building, like you said, and then it was finally sitting at this conference where I just sort of kind of lost it. and was just like, you know what? 
sometimes you're just building a piece of software that makes it really easy for people to, you know, rent someone else's apartment for a weekend. Yeah. And that's fine. Like, but just say that. Let, so let's not pretend that we're saving the world by doing it. Yeah. Or connecting people all over the world and making everybody feel good. That's not really, that's not the truth. Okay. So, right. but yeah. And, but, but this seems to, your book isn't actually, I mean, it's, it's fiction, but it, I mean, it's not a tell all about Google and how bad or how good Google is as former VP of communications. Is it? No. No, the big disruption is um, I wanted it to be about more than just one company. Um, I really didn't want it to be a, a, a tell-all, some whistleblowing. If I had some horrible incident, specific incident to relate, um, I, I would have taken that path. But I was much more interested in appealing to a much broader base of people than, say, just people specifically looking at one company. Um, because I think the industry across the board, whether you're looking at startups, so very early, small companies, all the way through to the really big tech companies that are some of the most powerful companies in the world today. There are some common characteristics across these companies, and I wanted to address everyone or people who are interested in the industry. And I wanted to do it from the point of view of an insider because I feel like a lot of what those of us working in tech that we constantly see when people talk about our industry is these big, evil, laugh-track dystopias where we're all trying to steal everyone's data and we're bad, bad people. Um, and the truth isn't really like that. You know, it, it's much more um, nuanced and in some ways scarier, I think, as well. I think if, in fact, all, the only thing that tech companies were trying to do was to steal your data, well, at least you'd know what the end game was. When, in fact, actually, this ceaseless expansion of these companies is driven by something much, I think, darker and somewhat ego-driven and just a, a seemingly endless supply of capital that allows them to keep, you know, growing and growing and growing and going from an online diaper and bookstore to all of a sudden buying a grocery store like Whole Foods. So uh, well, we have to read your book so that that doesn't happen. Is that, or we need some of the, uh, <laughs> but well, how about I you, but do, how did you get hooked in? Yeah. Okay. I just want to know how you got, I'm going to use the word hooked in. How did you get to Google? As you say, these companies are sexist, even if they say they're not and they're diverse. But I guess in reality, when you actually look at most of these companies, you know, they're men and probably white male men and not necessarily women or uh, not really that diverse. Okay. Given that, um, what about sure. you? How did, what, why, why did you want to be involved? Well, you know, first I'll say I, I, I don't have some great story that ever since I was a little girl, I'd always wanted to work in technology. No, not at all. I, I got to London. Um, I'd been living in Japan. I got to London um, and needed a job. And every job I applied for uh, there, I was rejected. I'd worked as a journalist and there, not having papers, not, you know, speaking English like everyone else there. Um, no one was particularly interested in a 26-year-old American. Um, and so I, Google was the one place that called me back. <laughs> and I was interested in what they were doing. I was inspired by a project they had at the time to digitize all the world's books and put that information online and make it searchable. Um, and that's how I got in. And once I was there, you know, I, I think tech, the industry is quite sexist. I think the number of women and people of color is incredibly low. I do think it still has, it is much more of a meritocratic industry than a lot of places. But I think the problem is, is that tech has always set the bar very high. It is always claimed to be a much better industry. It's always claimed to be very values-based and have these mighty principles. And so I think they have to be held to account when 
they're not meeting that goal. Because yes, maybe finance, I don't know the latest statistics, maybe finance is a little bit worse if you're a woman. But I don't think finance is out there telling everyone, and, and part of its marketing is not telling everyone that it's about building a more equal planet. And so um, I, anyway, I got in and I, um, I was actually hired. I failed my entire interview process. It was a disaster. But um, I was coming from a Well, how was it? A, I want to take people. you back because I'm interested. <laughs> I don't want to pass it. It was a disaster. Why was it a disaster? I mean, did you feel it was a disaster or did they tell you it was a disaster? <laughs> or what happened? Yeah. It was, no one needed to tell me. It was pretty clear. Um, I had one interview. You know, they brought me in and um, it was like four hours of interviews with no breaks. Um, and I remember one interview, the guy came in, he brought his computer in and he typed the entire time and never looked up once from the computer. Um, I wasn't even sure if he knew who I was. Um, and every time I'd give an answer, he would, he'd say, huh? <laughs> and then he would type for about two minutes. And, and so then I had another interview where I was interviewing for a PR role. So that's about promoting the products and that kind of thing. And um, a woman on the PR team asked me how I would promote a particular project. And I just said, eh, I wouldn't. <laughs> I was like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, doesn't make sense to use PR for it. I'd use marketing. That was a bad answer if you're doing a PR interview. And then there was a final question I remember where they were like, why are you so interested in working at Google? And now, years later, having worked at Google and done many of these interviews myself, I know what you're supposed to say is talk about how excited you are about the company and its mission and how much that, you know, corresponds with your own values. But that's not what I said at all at the time. I just said, I said, well, you know, I think it's really fascinating this point in time in tech where tech is really cool. And really, this is 2006. Tech is really cool and hot and people are really interested in it. And there's almost this transformation that's happening that the geeks and the nerds are cool or moving in that direction. And I said, and at some point that won't be the case. And I think that's a really, what a fascinating time to be able to potentially watch that transformation, which in retrospect, maybe was prescient, but at the time it just sounded like a really bad answer because you weren't really telling them how great the company was. <laughs> but so anyway, they didn't hire me, um, but the, my boss or my future boss really wanted me to work on this particular project. So she hired me as a contractor and eventually I was converted into a full-time employee. Well, it sounds to me like you nailed the interview. I mean, ex what you said is exactly what happened. I mean, that was it. I mean, the other stuff was just kind of standard for any job, right? You tell them how great the company is. Right, and, right. You know, the mission is so important and all that. So you really nailed it. And I'm assuming that when you <laughs> first started working on the project as a consultant, then what happened? I mean, because you were there for a while, what was, what, what, then what happened after that? Well, you know, what was interesting, and I think what very much influenced the writing of The Big Disruption was that I was in London, um, which is from the start, Europe was always much more skeptical of Google and the other big tech companies. They found it very odd that these kind of primary colored, you know, very cheerful American companies were coming in with their mission statements and saying that they were going to save the world. And I think the Europeans were sort of like, but you're a company and you're trying to sell us something and why don't you just say that? And so there was already a lot of skepticism, um, even in cases where there shouldn't necessarily have been any. And my very first um, week on the job, I was sent off to go defend this project in front of a bunch of um, book publishers and authors. And I spent an hour and a half just getting yelled at. And that was my first kind of moment of saying, oh, wait, there's not everything that we believe internally or are being told internally, does the outside world necessarily believe it? And in some cases, as I saw in the following years, 
in some cases, I really felt like the outside world had very legitimate grievances and that we weren't necessarily listening to them or taking them with sufficient seriousness internally. Why do you think that is? I'm curious, because I think that's true in a lot of different areas. Europeans have maybe a more realistic or practical approach to things where Americans have this uh, sort of, I'm calling it a marketing mentality. I just made that up, but it's sort of, you know, everything is great and we're great and everything is wonderful. And there is a real difference in, in terms of how we, I guess, behave in our companies and sell our products. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I never say, you're right, Mark. I never thought about that in that term, but I, I don't think that's far from the mark. I think absolutely, there, the, first of all, I think there's just the general statement that no matter where you are in the world, um, people are always going to root for the home team. So if you're in France and there's a French and, you know, a French tech company that's competing with an American tech company, the French tech company is more likely to get good coverage and be seen more positively. So there's just a little bit of that, that it was a foreign company coming into Europe. But I do think what you said is true, which is that I think in the U.S. in particular, we love our rags to riches, um, you know, the, which would the equivalent in tech would be we started in a garage or we started in a dorm room and we built this thing. It has this sense of almost a meritocratic egalitarian vision that anyone can can build these things and become famous and do great things. Um, and I think one of the things that actually is really quite good about the Valley in comparison to other parts of the world is that there is a real spirit of entrepreneurialism and scrappiness of you don't, you know, commonly held assumptions are sort of made to be challenged. And so people very much depart from first principles of asking these big questions of, well, why can't you build this or why can't you do this thing? And I actually think that's a huge positive. The negative, of course, is that sometimes people buy so much into the vision that they've painted that they don't allow the space or listen to really legitimate questions that people have. You know, if you think of again the Airbnb example before, you'd say, but wait a second, should, shouldn't you be paying taxes like hotels do? Or how are you going to handle the safety of, say, your, um, your guests? You know, and you could go through that exercise with every single, you know, platforms. You could say, okay, but you're allowing anyone to say anything they want on your free speech platform. Is that actually a good thing? You know, and some of those questions don't get asked because people are so excited about the mission and so committed to these huge kind of, you know, big blue sky level thinking that they don't always ask some of the stuff that I think people who have more experience or have seen different versions of this in the past or in other parts of the world might ask. Okay, I know you you wrote your book, so obviously you're getting, you know, this is all part of what, I mean, even though the book is fiction, this is part of the message that's in the book. Is there anybody else out there with you who is begin, who are feeling this way and writing about it? Um, I know in the beginning you said you did when I heard you say that you, uh, when you wrote the book, you wanted to initially write it anonymously. You didn't want to be part of the whole picture. You kind of wanted to stay in the background, get it out there, but hey, it's not me who's writing it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I worked I worked in PR for ten years, and you don't really go into PR wanting to be the person that's out in front uh, talking, right? Um, <laughs> and I think that was, a lot of it was just that, and part of it was that I had, you know, moved on. I just had my third kid. I had written this book years before. I was starting a startup, um, and 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 I think there was, if I'm honest, I think there was a little part of me that was just scared, right, of people's reaction or my former colleagues' reaction to the book. And so I wanted to do it anonymously because I, I wanted the work to speak for itself. I didn't want people to assume that it was all just about Google just because I had worked at Google. 
Um, and, uh, you know, and I thought not doing it anonymously would be a great way to get it out there. But then um, as Medium, who originally ran the book on their platform, as we were talking, uh, that op-ed ran um, in the New York Times that was from the administration criticizing Donald Trump. And I kind of looked at that and I was just like, geez, you know, if you have powerful people who can't put their names to things like actually being public about something is much more powerful. And there are very few women in very senior positions in the Valley. And if you can't put your name to this, you're actually really missing a trick in terms of the overall point you're trying to make. And so as much as I didn't want to do it, I ended up uh, being public about it. Yeah. Well, VP communications, you couldn't help it. You have to, (laughs) that's how you got the title. You're a communicator. (laughs) Even if you don't want to be, you are. But I'm so curious. Isn't it like, wasn't it the plumber's house is the leakiest? I think it was. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But you're this woman who's in this company, um, one of many that is, you know, doesn't have a lot of women. And now I just heard you say kind of you had, you were pregnant with your third baby. So how do you Uh do all this or how are you doing all this? I know you left, maybe we should start with, you decided I'm, and I don't know when that happened or how it happened, but let's talk about that. You no longer wanted to be at Google. What was that process? You know, it was funny because I, and I imagine a lot of your listeners can relate to this. You're, you know, you always wonder, oh, what would it be like to have that big job? And so like a lot of people, I, I always ask that question and thought it would be, you know, you get to the very, very top of your career and, and wouldn't that be wonderful? And the salary is really large and the recognition kind of almost the ego rewards of the job are large. Um, but once I actually got it, I realized I didn't really enjoy it. You know, a lot of the people I had worked with, um, who I spent most of my time with, meaning my team, by the time I got to the management team at Google, I really wasn't spending that much time with them. You know, and there was, even if I had been a leader in the past within my organization, um, I still had peers, whereas all of a sudden I was running, you know, whatever it was, 250 or 300 person team. Um, and there was just this clear hierarchy where I was the boss and I would see that there would be people on my team who wouldn't come talk to me in the micro kitchen because they were intimidated by me or that if I made a very silly comment like, huh. I don't like this brand of sparkling water that we've, you know, stocked in the refrigerator. <laughs> People would all of a sudden be like, oh, well, we, we better change that water. <laughs> and I, I saw that, I, I saw and I didn't like that gulf. And then there was actually the date, a lot of the content of the job where I just was increasingly feeling like um, we weren't sometimes showing enough urgency or seriousness in terms of some of the issues that our products were raising, um, particularly in terms of content moderation and any so, of the platforms we had where we had controversial content. And so that, um, it took me a very long time to actually pull the trigger. I actually wrote an essay on Medium that's called your, my 837 uh, pain-free step plan to quitting your job. And it's all about how all the ridiculous acrobatics I went through, um, including searching on Google to decide whether you should start your job, like quit your job, <laughs> or interviewing at other companies that I actually wasn't interested in working at, but just to almost prove to myself I should stay at the company. Um, all those like absurd things I did before really coming along to the realization of what I needed to do in order to be able to take that big step. Yeah, you know, that's a great article. I did read it, and I think that is sort of what many of us, and maybe particularly women, I don't, I'm not sure if that's the case, but here you are. Two things, I guess you're saying. It was lonely at the top. That was just you in, as an Definitely. individual. And then there were other things about the company and the, and the direction they 
were in or going in, which bothered you and you wanted to change. But it's really hard, I would imagine, as a woman to be able to let go of that kind of a position. I mean, maybe even more so than if you were a man in that position. I, I, I don't know, but it just seems to me, you know, here you are and this other women would look at you and, and just wonder why you would even consider, uh, leaving, I guess. Um, so one other question, when you were there, were other women, you talk about being sort of lonely at the top and anything you said, they bow and kowtow to you or they were afraid of you. Were they jealous of you? Did you find there was kind of an, was there any kind of internal jealousy among the sexes? Oh, there might have been. I never felt that from any of my female coworkers. Um, and and the, my female peers, while there were a few of us, um, the few other women on the management team were all very um, supportive. Um, I think the, I, so I never had a specific, I think, lens in terms of what you were suggesting, though you, though you might be right in terms of being a woman and stepping away from that role and knowing how hard it is to get to that role and all of that. I think the thing that I thought more about was I, you know, I got to a point in my life where I spent all my time working um, and particularly because it was PR, which is a 24-7 job, you know, I couldn't go and do almost anything without having someone ring me or have something happen over email. I constantly had to be checking email and text messages and so forth, dealing with small little fires that were burning anywhere in the world. And I, so I'd gotten to a point where I really ceased to be anything else. I didn't read books anymore. If I went to parties or out to dinner, all I could really talk about was tech and what was going on in the tech industry because I wasn't engaging with anyone in any other way. And I was getting on a shuttle bus or driving my car every day, you know, an hour to two hours down to Mountain View. I live in San Francisco. And so I'd ceased to be anything else. And I had this worry that while I didn't think of myself as a particularly, you know, ego-driven person, um, I was like, well, what happens when all of a sudden your entire life just goes away? Like, you know, you're not happy. You know, you need to walk away from this. But what happens when people say, what do you do? And whereas before, even if you don't think it matters that much to you that you got to say, oh, I'm, you know, the VP of this, what happens when you no longer even have that option to say that? And how will you handle that? And I think a lot of it was realizing and saying, okay, well, maybe that's going to be a problem. Maybe it's not going to be a problem. But what is it you need to do to kind of prepare yourself for, for that world so that it is an okay transition and that you don't care about that, you know? And I think that was what took me a really long time to, first of all, realize and accept and kind of acknowledge that that might be an issue for me. And then second of all, figure out how do I navigate that? All right. That's my last question because we only have three minutes left. I probably shouldn't ask it now, but so how fast forward, how did you handle it? How do you feel mother of three or maybe mother of more? I'm not sure, but, uh, so <laughs> you <laughs> are now in this position. Tell us how, how do you handle say, what are well, you, you know, doing? What I did, first yeah. of all, I feel like I'm a mother of 30, but I'm just a mother of three. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, what I did was I, I, I knew, knowing myself and knowing I had this worry about who am I, this kind of existential question, um, I did something, I, I knew I needed to have something to jump into, right? I needed to, I couldn't just quit my job, walk away, and then the next morning wake up and not have a job. I felt like that would be nice for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden I would be hit by this kind of wall of depression or kind of these weighty questions about, well, now what? And so what I did was I, um, you know, I had a great luxury in that I did this when I was 40. I had already... Um, saved up enough money and had gotten far enough in my career that I could make a step like this. And so I recognized that. But what I did was I, you know, I'd always, when I was in college, um, 
I never took a class that for, for fun, you know, and I'd always really wanted to explore doing more writing. And so what I did when I was starting to get my head around this idea of leaving was I applied to an MFA program. So to go, to go back to school and, um, and once I'd put down the hundred dollar deposit for that, I felt like I was committed. Like it was like buying a gym membership. I was like, well, now I have to go. Um, and that was kind of what finally forced me out the door. And what was nice about it was that it meant that then, you know, the week after I left, I had something that I had to go to right away. And it didn't end up being a massive, massive time commitment. And I ended up exploring other things and I got more time with my kids. I ended up starting a company and ended up doing more writing. A whole bunch of other things happened quite naturally after I left. But it was really great for me to have something to fall into right away that gave some shape to my day and made me feel like it was entirely psychological. There was no um, absolute business need for me to go and get a degree at, um, you know, or certainly this particular degree um, at 40. But it was, I mean, Jessica, that is such a great sense of purpose. A, a great story. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry we only have 30 seconds left because I could go, I, you know, I know there's obviously so much more to the story and the book, The Big Disrup- Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. Jessica P- uh, Powell by the book. Uh, you're an amazing woman. That's all I have to say. Great having you on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> <laughs> 